Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a lamp a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started tonight, let's make sure that we are in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure everybody's ready to study the word. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we appreciate the fact that we have the freedom in this country to gather together to study your word, that we can freely proclaim the truth of the gospel. We are thankful that there are opportunities for people such as Ben Stein to put together a film, such as the uh, expelled film dealing with the issues of evolution, basically pointing out the flaws and failures of modern science, starting from a truly starting from an atheistic presupposition. Father, we pray that uh, in this nation there will be those who will be confronted with that film, see that, and it will perhaps stir their conscience so that they will be interested in turning to you and that it will stir up positive volition. Father, we pray that as we study your word tonight that we can uh, see that negative volition is a trend of history, and as we look around in the history of Israel in the Old Testament, as well as in our own nation today, we see these constant downward slides into apostasy, into a rejection of you, but nevertheless, we know that you are in control and you love us and you consistently deal with us, not on the basis of who we are what we do, but on the basis of your grace and on the basis of your the work that Christ did on the cross. And Father, help us to think through clearly what your word says tonight, that we can see the implications for our thinking and applications for our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter seven. Last time, of course, we dealt with a few little technical glitches in terms of the what was going on on the um, using the computer, so I'm not even going to try to do what I had intended to do last time, although I think I've decided to do those kinds of things in a more simple manner. We are looking at God's response to Solomon's prayer. A lot of times we don't see God's direct response to prayer in the Old Testament or hear his articulation of that response. There are times, of course, that we do, but for the most part, uh, we don't. Same thing that happens today in the church age, except today we live in an era of no revelation, no ongoing special revelation. So praying to God often seems to a lot of people to be just a sort of a one-way conversation. And it's hard for folks to realize that the, two, the, the second part of the conversation takes place as we read the Word of God because God communicates to us through His Word. He does, is not a God who has ever communicated through feelings or through impressions or through uh, intuitive insights. That's never been God's way. There's always... Uh, a, a, a clear juxtaposition and the way that God has dealt with his people, God has revealed himself, God has preserved scripture and the ways and means of the various pagan religions, no matter what they are, they all have certain things, uh, things in common. And this brings up the whole area of uh, theolo- what is theologically called bibliology, 
and has to do with just the ultimate authority in our life and how well we as believers conform to the Word of God as the ultimate authority in our life. Now, we come to Second Chronicles chapter, I think I said 17 earlier, I meant 7. We come to Second Chronicles chapter uh, 7. We see God's response in a fuller way than we have recorded in First Kings chapter 9. First Kings chapter 9 gives a, a more uh, an abbreviated or abridged version, and the reason has to do with the purposes of the writer of First Kings and the purposes of the writer of Chronicles. Often when God speaks, or in the Gospels when Jesus speaks, he taught, just to use a Gospel example, he taught for lengthy periods of time. He might have taught somewhere for 30 minutes or an hour or even more, but if you read the Sermon on the Mount or the Upper Room Discourse or the uh, Olivet Discourse, you can read through those in five minutes or less. And yet it's pretty clear that Jesus must have talked a lot longer. That just, I mean, you can read through any of the Gospels in a relatively short period of time, and yet Jesus must have said and done a whole lot more. So, the Holy Spirit in inspiration had a had an economic use of language, and he is able to communicate what Jesus taught without taking up pages and pages of repetition and redundancy. Also, not that Jesus' teaching was repetitive or redundant, but it just you don't find, that's what you find when you read some of the other types of religious literature from the Book of Mormon to the Bhagavad Gita. But the Holy Spirit comes along through the inspiration of the authors who have a specific objective in mind, a specific thing that they want to communicate. And so under the editorial advisement, one might say, of the Holy Spirit, the, the writer will take out of a somewhat lengthy statement that which he needs in order to present his case. And so often when secular secularists or those who reject from the outset, presuppositionally reject the inspiration or authority of Scripture, they come to what appear to be contradictions. They'll look at a passage like 1 Kings 9 and God's answer, and then 2 Chronicles 7, and they'll say, see, there's a contradiction here. And the problem is there's no contradiction. If you put the two together, you have a full you would have a much fuller or complete statement of what God actually said. But the writer of Kings is selecting a portion of it in order to emphasize one thing. The writer of Chronicles is writing towards the end or after, excuse me, after the uh, uh, exile, the return to the land, and his emphasis is basically to give a pep talk to, to the Jews who are back in the land to encourage them to finish building the temple, encourage them to finish uh, reestablishing the priesthood and the operation of the priesthood, and to go back to the glory days of Israel when they were walking with the Lord prior to the discipline of the Babylonian captivity. And so when the writer of Chronicles records God's answer to, to Solomon's prayer, he brings out the aspect I pointed out last time, of God's direct answer to the discipline section of Solomon's prayer, where he recognized that Israel would disobey God, and God would discipline them and take them out of the land. And he focuses on God's promise to listen to them and to heal the land, which they have seen take place in their generation. The recipients are the ones who originally, the generation that would have originally read this. So when we look at this chapter, starting in verse 12, then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night. Now, the, the word dream does not appear here, but that is what is implied. The Lord appeared to Solomon by night. We know from the account in 1 Kings 9 that he appeared to him a second time as he had previously at Gilgal, and when God first appeared to him at Gilgal, just after he had become king, God then, that is the time when God said, ask of me what you will, and I'll give it to you, and that's when Solomon asked 
that he be given wisdom. So this is the second time that God appears to him. And just like the first, the implication is that he's appeared in a dream to Solomon. And there's a conversation that takes place. And I think this is important because we live in an era today when there is this, dr- this strong pull, not just a drift, but a strong pull towards mysticism in our culture, there is a drift in our culture that goes against verbal, uh, verbal discussion, that goes against uh, analysis of words and phrases as having meaning as part of uh, the whole concept in post-millennial, I mean, not post-millennial, post-modernism with the whole breakdown of, of language and meaning and with the rise of television over the last 50 years, as well as the Internet, there's, there's more of an emphasis on images, on sight, on um, style, rather than content and substance and really paying attention to what is said. And we definitely see this bleed over into uh, politics. And, of course, we're all just saturated right now with everything that's going on in the, in the primaries. And if you watch the political ads, you need to see exactly what I mean. There's, there, nobody really talks about the issues. They love talking about why they don't talk about the issues because that, that, that again, creates this, this, uh, this style. It, it creates an image. But, there, again, there's no real discussion of substantive issues. And so the advertisements on television all focus on certain kinds of imagery and certain things that evoke patriotism in, in America. I was watching one ad that was played on a news show. This ad is playing a lot in uh, Pennsylvania. We don't get too much of it now since our primaries passed. But there's, there's uh, imagery in there of both... Um, Pearl Harbor and also imagery uh, related to uh, the Civil War. Now, Hillary Clinton's campaign's got to be really feeling the pressure to be pull out two images from two such different uh, patriotic uh, American historical events that just challenge, you just really bring out a lot of emotion in Americans. And that's what these ads are doing. Is, and, and you see them with everybody. We, we use images, the, the whole thing with the American flag. And uh, you saw that at <clears throat> when uh, the Jeremiah Wright incident had come out. And here you have Barack Obama, who's made an issue out of not wearing the, the American flag lapel pin, and he's just not going to go along with these, just what he ter- would term superficial shows of patriotism, he's going to be real substantive. So the first time he really gets challenged and he has to make a speech in relationship to the, uh, to the Jeremiah Wright statements, he comes out on a stage that has six American flags behind him. It's imagery. It is all designed to play to, uh, our, to a non-rational element in our souls that is to evoke certain feelings as opposed to appeal to content. Y'all remember back in, when was it, 92? Yeah, Ross Perot, come out there, put a little whiteboard up there, and we're going to talk about the economy here. That didn't go over real well. But it was, it was subject. But Americans don't want to think. They don't want, as, as a whole, we live in a culture that is prone to simply... Uh, emoting in one way or another as opposed to thinking. And so we don't want to have rational uh, discourse on a lot of things. This plays over into the whole elements related to the lack of civility in our culture and other things like that. And the thing that I'm pointing out here is that when God appears to Solomon, he speaks to him in words, in sentences, in paragraphs. It's not an impression. It's not some sort of intuitive thing, but God is giving him specific content based on words that mean certain things that can be analyzed, that can be recorded, 
and that can be understood uh, down, through the, down through the centuries. And so God appears to Solomon and says to him, I have heard your prayer. I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, we studied this last time. He is summarizing the statements that Solomon has made in the first part of each of his seven petitions in his prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8, summarizing the various types of discipline that God would bring upon Israel. It's not an exhaustive list. It's simply a summary of the kinds of uh, ways God will judge the nation in the land because of their because of their disobedience. And then I pointed out in verse 14, when God gives the conditional clause here, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Again, I pointed out that this is one of those verses that is frequently cited by pastors at times when America seems to be threatened by disaster to point out the fact that we live in a culture that is corrupt, a culture that is based on um, the evil triplets of Marxism, socialism, Darwinism, and atheism, and we are anti-God and anti-Scripture, and we are against true spirituality, so we need to humble ourselves and pray and seek God, and then God will forgive us. Well, that's true individually, but this is a national prayer based on a national covenant, as I pointed out, and that the my people in this passage refer to the covenant people of Israel, and only Israel has that covenant relationship with God as a nation and as a people. And I gave you all the data last time about how this phrase, my people, or if humans are speaking in Kings and Chronicles or the entirety of the Old Testament, your people refers to Israel. doesn't refer to those who are saved. My people never includes non-Jewish Gentile believers not, uh, or non uh, those who haven't um, become proselytes and joined with Israel and entered into uh, entered into the land, people such as Ruth and others. There were believers outside of Israel that were Gentiles that did not move to uh, Israel. For example, later with Jonah, you have the Assyrians. You have others at different times. You have Naaman uh, the Syrian. These are believers but they are not living in the um, covenant land of Israel. And my people never refers to those who are outside of that covenant relationship with God. So it's, it's not only inappropriate, it's just dead wrong to even try to apply this to anyone other than the nation Israel. And it's only operative in the context of those who are under the Mosaic Law. Because all this terminology, as I pointed out again and again as we went through the, uh, the, the passages in Leviticus 26 and 27 and Deuteronomy uh, 29 and 30, is that this terminology comes out of God's promise that if you disobey me, I will punish you in these ways, even to the point of taking you out of the land, but eventually you will turn to me, and when you turn to me and, and, and seek my face, then I will... I'll bring you back to the land. So Second uh, Chronicles 7, 13 and 14 makes it very clear that this must be understood in that covenant context. But this isn't all that God says in this particular prayer. In verse 15, he goes on to say, Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place. And the, the use of eyes and ears here is another a figure of speech called an anthropomorphism. And an anthropomorphism is a figure of speech where human body parts are ascribed to God in order to, that he doesn't actually possess, in order to communicate certain things to us about how God relates to us, how God's plans and history work, things of that nature. And eyes have to do with his watchfulness, and we'll see this in this uh, a couple of times in this uh, section. The eyes of God can refer my, uh, at times to His 
uh, omniscience, his knowledge, because we learn, we know things through what we look at. But in this context, it refers to his watchful care, his concern that he is in control, watching over the affairs of the nation Israel. He says, my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to prayer made in this place, that when prayer is done the right way in the right place under the Mosaic law, now we don't worship God in one place, as Jesus announced to the woman uh, at the well in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, that there would come a time not too far distant when uh, worship would not be at a specific place in Jerusalem or anywhere else. So he says, uh, for now I've chosen and sanctified this house. God had set it apart, and we saw back in 1 Kings chapter, in the early part of chapter 8, that when they moved the Ark of the Covenant into the uh, Holy of Holies in the temple, that God's Shekinah glory, his dwelling presence, the cloud came and hovered over the, and entered into the holy place, indicating that he had sanctified the house, which indicates that it was set apart to his service, and so it was to be treated in a distinct manner from everything else. So he says, For now I have chosen and sanctified this house, that my name may be there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. So this is a second time in these two verses where he talks about uh, his eyes. And so this gives us a good indication of what God is talking about in terms of his care for Israel. Now, as we look at these, at these particular verses, they, the terminology that uh, we find here doesn't just pop up as if it's something nice and it, isn't, it, uh, isn't this just a nice way to express things. All of this terminology comes out of comes out of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And there's no surprise for us there. It's, it all comes out of that, that background. That there's a threat of judgment that we see w- embedded within this, uh, this prayer that if uh, the people are not obedient, there will be judgment and discipline. And that's played out even more as we get into um, verse 16. Uh, verse 17, as for you, God says to Solomon, if you walk before me as your father David walked and do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you will keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish, my throne of your, establish the throne of your kingdom as I covenant with your David your father, saying you shall not fail to have a man as a ruler in Israel. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have said before you, go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot them from the land which I have given them, and this house, which I have sanctified for my name, I will cast out of my sight, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all peoples. So there is the uh, threat of judgment, the warning of divine judgment to the people. And we see this same thing happen in, uh, in the Old Testament, that God is watching over them and when, they're in, when they're in the land. In Deuteronomy 11, uh, verse 12, we read that this is a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it. So the implication is accountability, that Israel is accountable for their actions and for their obedience uh, to the Lord. That the place that he has named is a place that he has designated as the central sanctuary. Deuteronomy 12, 11 states, It shall come about that the place in which the Lord your God will choose for his name to dwell there you shall bring all that I command you. And it goes, it goes on to talk about the sacrifices and offerings. But it's this place that is set apart as a central place of worship for Israel. Passages like uh, Leviticus 26, 14 and 15, talk, warn of coming judgment. Deuteronomy 8, 19. These are all passages that we have examined many times to establish this particular uh, principle that God has uh, entered into this contract with Israel and there are incentive clauses for obedience and there's warning of judgment and penalties for, for disobedience. And that forms the backdrop for this particular, uh, for this particular chapter. Now, let's turn back to 
1 Kings chapter 9. There in verse, verse 1 and 2, we read, It came to pass when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all Solomon's desire which he wanted to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time. This would be sometime after the uh, dedication of the temple. We don't know how long. It was probably just a short time. The Lord said to him, Verse 3, the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built to put my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. See, in between the first half of that verse and the second half of the verse are all the verses we read in Second Chronicles chapter 7. And then in verse 4, he is going to give Solomon a conditional covenant that will be similar to the Davidic covenant. So he says to, to Solomon, Now, if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying you shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. A couple of things I want you to note there. First of all, it's a conditional promise. It's not unconditional. That's indicated by the if-then construction. You have the if clause in the Protestant, the first part of the conditional construction in verse 4, and the then clause is what God will do on the condition of obedience and that's given in verse 5. The if clause sounds as if, in our common thinking, as if he's asking Solomon to have a perfect life, and he's not. David, his father, didn't have a perfect life, but David had, was said by God to have a heart uh, after God. He was completely devoted to him despite his failures, his sins, everything else. When it was all said and done, God said, David was motivated to please me more than anybody else. What What really truly motivated David was his walk with the Lord. And so that is what he is uh, encouraging and challenging Solomon to do, is to walk before him, to live his life before him in the same way his father David had walked. And despite those sins, it was still a life that was characterized by integrity and uprightness of heart, even though he had committed adultery, even though he had... um, conspired to commit murder, even though he had covered all of these things up. Nevertheless, he was a man who, in God's estimation, was a man of integrity and a man who was upright in his thinking because he was oriented to the plan and purposes of God. And that's a great example today. In fact, I was reading something the other day, uh, some, uh, some journal article, that was dealing with uh, different issues, and the writer made the observation that the most horrible sin in America is the sin of adultery. And that's just not, that's not biblical. I mean, it's true that it's a terrible sin. All of the sins are terrible, but we tend to create certain sins that in our, in our culture that go, that we make unforgivable. And yet we have people like David and others who committed terrible sins. Moses was a murderer. David conspired to commit murder. Uh, David was a, was an adulterer. You have various other people. Solomon is going to fail miserably, and we'll get to that. But God always forgives us. Wherever we are, whatever we've done, God always meets us where we are. And There's no sin that is too great for the grace of God, and there's no sin that's too difficult for God to forgive. And so we see this forgiveness of God here. He's not establishing an impossible standard for Solomon. He's establishing a true, genuine, spiritual standard for Solomon that his heart needs to be completely devoted to to him. And the result of this would be then, in verse 5, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. And what God is promising Solomon here is that if you are obedient like David, then... It is through your line 
that the Davidic covenant will be fulfilled, that it is through your descendant that the Davidic covenant will be fulfilled. I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying you shall not fail. You have a man on the throne of Israel, but if you or your sons at all turn from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have said before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off from Israel... Then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and his house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. Now, we don't have all of that in the Chronicles account. Why? Because that's written after this had already happened, and they were fully aware of that. The purpose of the Chronicles account is to encourage the people to get back to God because of his faithfulness in restoring them to the land, and so the emphasis in Chronicles is on how God has had heard the prayer of Solomon and had brought them back to the land where the emphasis here is on the warning. And this foreshadows exactly what's going to happen in the history of both the northern and southern kingdoms. And especially in the southern kingdom, what we will see take place is that uh, eventually the descendants of Solomon and all of the kings that, that we have in the southern kingdom are all the descendants of Solomon, that just as Solomon will, as he gets older, turn his back on God and give in to his sin nature, reject God, and go uh, in a desperate search for meaning and happiness through everything that he can conceivably uh, think of, and that's the story of the book of, uh, of Ecclesiastes, his confession of the fact that he sought happiness in everything in life, but he could not find it apart from God, that life is meaningless apart from God. But because of that, and because as history worked out with his descendants, and his descendants turned from God, God does not give the promise, fulfill the promise of the Davidic king through the line of Solomon. Uh, one of his descendants just before the uh, captivity is Jeconiah. And because of his evil, because of his idolatry, because of all of the things he did, God said no one who was a descendant of Jeconiah would ever sit on the throne and rule over Israel, and that's called the Keniah curse. And that's why, this is why you have two different accounts of the genealogy of uh, of Jesus in the in 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 Luke in Luke and Matthew in the Gospels. So hold your place here and let's just turn over briefly to Luke chapter three. In the last part of the third chapter of Luke, we have the genealogy of Jesus, and it's different from the genealogy that we find in Matthew. And so if you're really interested and you're really nimble-fingered, you can hold your place in Luke 3 and also flip over to Matthew chapter 1 while you're keeping your place in 1 Kings 9. Just testing your coordination tonight. Now, you just stay there. You just stay there in, in, in Luke 3. Look down at verse 23. There we read Jesus was about 30 years of age, and that's about means about. Too many people have taken that to be exact. It, it's, Luke didn't know precisely how old he was, so he makes a general, generality. Jesus was probably closer to 35 or 36 uh, from what we can tell chronologically today, but he was about 30 years of age. And the son of Joseph, the son of uh, Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi. Now just look at that, those names, Joseph, Heli, Mathat, Levi. But if you look at Matthew, Matthew Matthew doesn't start with Jesus and go backward. He starts with uh, Abraham and comes forward. And so when we come to the end, it says that Iliad begat Eliezer, Eliezer begat Mathan, and there's some that think that Mathan and Mathat are the same, but then there's a diversion. Mathan begot Jacob, and there is a thought that there is a difference there. 
And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary. But that's not the best explanation of the difference. The best explanation is that Joseph's name is inserted in place of Mary's in uh, Luke 3 because it, it was typical in genealogies is to have the man's name there and not the woman's name. And that what we have in uh, Luke chapter 3 is the descent the physical descent through his mother, Mary, coming down to, uh, to Jesus. Now, if we trace that back, what we see is that in Luke chapter 3, verse 31, the son of Malia, the son of Menan, the son of Mat- Mat- Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. See, Jesus' lineage physically couldn't have gone through Joseph because if you look at the Joseph, the, the uh, Matthew genealogy, it traces that through uh, Kaniah, Jeconiah. So Jesus could not be a physical descendant of Jeconiah because of the Kaniah curse. And so he's cut off physically from having that descent through Solomon. But it's through Solomon that, that he has a legal inheritance to the throne via, uh, via his father Joseph. But it's Mary that he has the direct physical descent through, and her line goes back to Nathan. And the reason it goes back to Nathan is because of the fact that in this covenant with Solomon, that Solomon disobeyed God, and as a result of that, he is not going to be in that position to be in the direct physical line of Jesus. So in verse 7 we read, Then I will cut off, back in 1 Kings 9 now, Then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and this house which I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight. This is what was fulfilled in 586. Israel's taken, the southern kingdom is taken out of the land, defeated by the Babylonians, and the temple was destroyed. And the last phrase, Israel will be a proverb and byword among all peoples. That means that uh, this was a sign of derision, that there would be such judgment against them and they would be defeated so overwhelmingly that this would be a, 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 a proverb, a, an idiom of shame and an, uh, and, and an, an idiom of, of um, defeat, embarrassment, lack of respect for Israel because of their failure to trust God. Verse 8 of 1 Kings 9, God goes on to say, As for this house which is exalted, everyone who passes by it, that house that is exalted is the temple, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and will hiss and say, Why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? Ah, It's a divine teaching moment. If you notice, that's how God does. He sets these things up. See this beautiful house? Why is this here? People will ask. Now you're going to look at the ruins and say, why did God let this happen? This is an opportunity to teach about the faithfulness of God to his promises, faithful to judge. Verse 9 gives the answer, then they will answer because they forsook the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods, and worshipped them, and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this calamity on them. Now all of this that we read here in 1 Kings 9, uh, verses 3 down through 9, as well as what we read in First, uh, Second Chronicles chapter uh, 7, verses 17 and following, gives us the content that God reveals to Solomon in this dream. And I want to come back to that theme that I started earlier, is that the dreams are not simply impressions, they're not feelings, they're not uh, uh, hallucinations, but they they contain uh, rational content. Uh, They contain discourse from God that can be analyzed, can be studied, can be broken down so that we can therefore understand precisely and exactly what God said, that he meant certain things and he did not mean other things. And this is what we see in Scripture is that divine revelation, divine communication 
uh, by the, is always by the Holy Spirit, but it's never divorced from the Word. God always communicates through words, not through images, feelings, impressions, or intuitions. And the way we understand this, of course, is to look at the whole doctrine of bibliology and uh, inspiration and how God communicated to people down through uh, the ages. And we know from Hebrews chapter 1 that in the Old Testament, God communicated to the fathers through in various ways and various means. And one of the ways in which God communicated was through dreams and visions. And we've gone through this and covered this several times over the last uh, several years, but it just seems that this is such an important area. There's so much confusion on this that it's important to go back and review this. And every time I go through it, I always learn something new look at a passage a little bit different way and come to understand this a little more clearly. But since I've covered this many times, both in Hebrews 1 and in Genesis, we won't spend a a tremendous amount of time going through this. The word dream is from the Hebrew word halom, and uh, it means uh, vision. And for some weird reason, the computer just turned a lot of stuff into Hebrew that shouldn't be there. And the other word is mara, M-A-R-A-H. The first word is chalom, C-H-A-L-O-M. And the word mara is from the verb ra'ah, which means to see. And it indicates that God is revealing himself in some way, either through a theophany and a physical appearance, or in some places he is he reveals and he shows images, but then he def, he explains what those images stand for, and we see that in in books such as Daniel, and it has the idea of uh, and another word is hatzon, which refers to a revelatory message, a revelatory revelatory message. Uh, it's not particularly. Um, uh, none of these words are uh, can be distinguished from one another. In many cases, they're used. In some cases, they're used interchangeably. Second thing we've noted is that dreams and visions are often used in synonymous parallelism, indicating a functional similarity. They're, they're, sometimes you, you think that well, he appears in dreams to believers and visions, or dreams to unbelievers and visions to believers, but they actually uh, there's no breakdown like that. I taught that at one point. I initially thought there was a distinction there, but there's no real difference between dreams or visions. Dreams generally take place at night because they are asleep, and visions would take place during the daytime when they would be awake and somehow God uh, would reveal something that they would see, much as John does on the Isle of Patmos, and he sees... uh, into the future, and it's like he, as if he is watching a documentary or film of future events. Third thing we should note is that there are two categories of divine revelation that we must understand. The first is general revelation. General revelation refers to nonverbal, nonspecific, nondirective revelation. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. There's no real content there, but there is evidence of something. That as we look at the structure of a cell, we look at the way a, a flower blooms, we look at the intricate structure of anything in biology, we are impressed with the fact that there must be a someone of tremendous skill who created these things. And that's the thesis behind this film, Expelled, and and the uh, thesis behind the whole intelligent design movement. Except intelligent design doesn't tell you much about the designer; it just tells you that there must be a designer. I mean, if any of us were cast adrift on a desert island, and you were to walk back into the jungle, and suddenly discovered a brand new uh, tractor back there. Most of you would think that somehow somebody made that and put it here. Unless you're a consistent Darwinian evolutionist, and then you would think that, well, this just 
happen by chance. I mean, that's generally what what is going on. So, we have general revelation. A general revelation doesn't give us any content. It just says something by its very presence. So, you can't develop theology based on general revelation. And special revelation, which is the second category, must always interpret general revelation. For example, we can't go to things in nature and derive patterns and principles just on the basis of creation. Uh, for, for example, uh, and, and it's only through revelation that God enables us to accurately use examples, what examples we can use from nature and ones we can't. For example, if you take an ant, an ant is used as a pattern for uh, good work, consistent labor in uh, the book of Proverbs, that we should be like the ant and we should be hard workers. But see, the ant is not used as a pattern for, uh, for family life because you have a queen and you have lots, lots of males. That's it. So that's not, the Bible never uses that. So special revelation always has to tell you how to use general revelation, how to interpret general revelation. In and of itself, general revelation is not, is not sufficient. It is sufficient for one thing, and that is to show that God exists, Romans chapter 1, and it's enough information to hold men accountable for the knowledge of his existence. But we have to understand these two categories because when we're talking about God revealing himself through impressions, through intuition, through dreams, visions, anything like that, then we, we recognize that that is special revelation. It's not general revelation because we're saying that there is some sort of specificity that God is communicating. And yet scripture is very clear that special revelation is has ended. There is no ongoing special re- revelation. God has closed the canon. And the issue, the reason he closed the canon, people say, well, why can't God do this? Because, number one, because God has made it clear that, that he would close the canon and there would be a time when revelation would cease. It would, he would have given a complete and sufficient revelation. If revelation is ongoing, then it can't ever be sufficient because you always need more. So the whole doctrine, the whole concept of the sufficiency of revelation uh, necessitates a completed revelation, that he's not giving any more information. And the challenge is to live on the basis of what God has revealed without needing the tantalizing and the titillating emotion of having ongoing experiences with God. The issue is to rest and study his word, rest on his word. Now, in the Old Testament, under a fourth point, the Old Testament, just in case you didn't get it, first point was just the vocabulary for dreams. Second point, dreams and visions are synonymous terms. Third point is the two categories of divine revelation. The fourth point is that several Gentiles have revelatory dreams in the Old Testament. God just doesn't reveal himself to Jews, and he doesn't just reveal himself to believers. He revealed himself to Abimelech in Genesis 20. He revealed himself to the butler and the baker in Genesis chapter 40, to the Pharaoh in Genesis 41, to a Midianite soldier, and, and uh, Gideon eavesdrops on, eavesdrops, on, eavesdrops on that conversation in Judges 7.13. He revealed himself to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 2 in chapter 4. But in every case... A Jew had to be there to properly interpret that uh, revelation because from Genesis 12 on, the Jews became the custodians of divine revelation. So even though God appears to unbelievers and to Gentiles, it was necessary for a Jew to always explain and interpret those dreams. They're not left to the individual to just generate his own understanding of what that meant. There, there is a specific, uh, specific meaning. Now, fifth point. God affirms that he speaks through dreams and visions as the normal 
approach to revelation in the Old Testament. But with Moses, he addressed him in a more direct, personal manner. Numbers 12, 6, and 7, God said to Moses, Hear now my words, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in my house. And he goes on to say in verse 8, I speak with him face to face, even plainly, and not in dark sayings. Face to face is an idiom for a more direct, intimate revelation. He spoke directly uh, to Moses. So there is a direct speaking to Moses, but the norm was through dreams and visions. But the dreams and visions contain the same sort of revelatory articulation, propositional revelation that you have um, in, in a face-to-face revelation. What I mean by propositional revelation is a technical term. A proposition is what you, you probably, when you were taking grammar back in the uh, junior high or high school, you learned that there were different ways in which you describe sentences. You have declared, uh, declarative sentences, interrogative sentences, imperative sentences. Uh, declarative sentences are propositions. A proposition is any statement that can pr- be proved to be true or false. A question is not a proposition. It can't be proved to be true or false. Is it hot outside? So you can't prove that to be true or false. An imperative statement is not a proposition. It can't be proved to be true or false. If I command somebody that you need to uh, go back to the kitchen and get me a drink of water, that can't be proved to be true or false. It's just a command. So declarative sentences, in the Greek, that would call for an indicative mood, is a statement where the person making the statement is attempting to describe reality. He may be wrong, so it's not correct, but a declarative statement is a statement where you're trying to describe reality. That's a proposition, and it can be proved to be true or false. And so the Scripture is primarily propositional revelation. It communicates truths, it communicates propositions, ideas, that can be proved to be true or false. And they are all true. So God communicates through these sorts of propositions. Therefore, by definition, if you get into things such as symbolic logic or sentential logic, things like that, um, you, you recognize that these sentences, these statements, can be proved to be true or false, And so God has communicated in such a way as to prove his and demonstrate his veracity. And therefore, it's up to us to think about and to analyze what he has said. It's not just an impression. It's not just something designed to evoke certain feelings about God. And yet what we have today is a culture and it's influencing the church in the emergent church emergent church movement, and it's been impacting a lot of different forms of worship in the church growth movement, contemporary worship, where it's all about how it makes you feel. Now, there's nothing wrong with emotion and evoking certain feelings. Any kind of music, anytime you you read through the Psalms, we're going to have, an, there should be some level of an emotional impact as we think about what is going on there. But that is not the primary uh, thing about the Psalms or about music or about worship. It's not about how we feel. It's about glorifying God. And, but we have emotions that follow along, follow along behind. But the emotions flow out of and as a result of thought and intellectual activity. The problem with a lot of people is they just can't get past the sort of abstract intellectual activity, and they just get all caught up with, uh, with that. And this is what's happened. I've seen this happen, especially in academia, with a lot of uh, people over the years in um, Christian higher education. They get so wrapped up in the details and the analysis and the grammar and the knowledge 
that somehow the whole relationship with God gets lost. It's all about knowledge. It's all about, and then what happens? They wake up 20 years down the road with an empty spiritual life because they really haven't been walking with the Lord. They've just been learning a lot of data for 20 years. And it, uh, a pattern that I saw a lot in the 80s and 90s was, and I saw this with at least a dozen different seminary professors, is a result was their wives, and, and, and men, wives tend to mirror your spiritual life. That's part of their soul as a responder, is their wives would, would be responding to their empty intellectual approach to, to God that was just completely devoid of any real application mentally. That's what it boils down to. There was no real application. It was just pure abstract, uh, abstract intellectual thought without it going in, in, into their, their relationships with God or anyone else. And so the wives would start feeling real empty. Next thing they would know, they, they want to have some sort of emotional event to get back to the kind of uh, dynamic spirituality they had back when they were 20 years old. So the wife would peel off and go to some charismatic or signs and wonders church, and the next thing you would you knew, they're dragging their husband with them, and now they're off into uh, some form of charismatic ministry, and they, they're rejecting everything they used to stand for. This happened with John Wimber, who was one of the founders of the Signs and Wonders movement. His wife was, you know, leading him down that path. It happened with uh, three of the seminary professors at Dallas Seminary who got caught up in the Vineyard movement back in the 90s, and they all lost their jobs and lost their, their a lot of respect, lost the ministries they, they had, all because of... Uh, this this attraction to just pure emotionalism, and it's because people don't approach the text in a in, in a manner that allows for their thinking to impact the rest of their life. They just they just compartmentalize uh, what they're learning, and it doesn't impact their day to day walk with the Lord or with anybody else. So. God speaks rationally. We can't throw that out. Sixth point, in the law, God provides quality control for dreams and visions. And we've studied these passages in Deuteronomy 13, 1 through 3, where God clearly recognizes that there'll be uh, those who come along and uh, as prophets, dreamer of dreams, and they actually perform miracles. And it comes to pass, verse 2. And then they say, let us go after other gods. Uh, the message doesn't fit with what God has already revealed and people know to be true. God said, let there be no other gods before you. And so their message contradicts accepted revelation. And so you, no matter how impressive the miracles might be, even when Catherine Kuhlman is down front and heals your uh, cancer, stomach cancer and you're sitting up in the balcony hiding behind somebody. I had somebody tell me that story one time. And said, oh, but she must be from God. Look at what she did. I said, well, let's look at Deuteronomy 13. There are going to be people who actually perform healings, but because what they teach contradicts God's word, we're told to uh, stay away from them. In fact, if they lived under the Old Testament economy, they were supposed to be stoned. You weren't to listen to them. They're there. God allows them to come along to test us to see if we're really devoted to his word or just to... Uh, Good results. The second area of testing is in Deuteronomy chapter 18, where you have a prophet who claims things will come true and they don't come to pass, and God says prophets are going to have a 100% reliability rate. And so if they say something comes to pass and it doesn't, then you are to stone him. So those are the two tests of a, of a prophet. God is very different from anyone else. Okay, so we go down and... Ver uh, seventh point, that was the sixth point, God provides quality control for dreams and visions. The seventh point, visions are given to a variety of prophets in the Old Testament. We have all kinds mentioned. Nathan, uh, in relationship to David, we have other visions given to prophets such as Edo at the time of Jeroboam. We have uh, Zechariah, Isaiah, all these different prophets that speak. And Every one of their prophecies 
when God speaks to them through dreams and visions, they all relate to Israel's history. The one thing that comes out is that whenever God gives dreams and visions, it never relates to the trivial day-to-day affairs of people's lives. It's always related to God's plan for Israel. Point number eight, only three dreams communicate. There are only three dreams that are that communicate after the law is revealed. Dreams are primarily before. Right, let me. I, I could add a fourth dream. That's where I, one of my modifications here. There's only four dreams after the law. The passage in 1 Kings 9 and 2 Chronicles 17 I missed earlier because it doesn't mention the word dream, but it's clear that that's what must be going on. Uh, there's a dream in Judges 7.13 when God dr- gives a dream to a Gentile. There's another. There's the dream when God appears to Solomon the first time in 1 Kings 3. There's a third dream in God's second appearance to Solomon in 1 Kings 9. And then the, third, or the fourth dream is to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. However, there is the implication in the text that there are other dreams that are not recorded in history. The ninth point is that the dreams always relate to God's plan for history and the outworking of the Abrahamic covenant. Once again, it doesn't have to do with people's personal spiritual life or their personal issues. It's God's work in history in relationship to the covenants, either the Abrahamic covenant or the Davidic covenant, which is exactly the context we've seen in 1 Kings 8 and 9. Then the tenth point is that in the New Testament, dreams are primarily associated with the birth of Christ and the announcement of his birth, uh, related to Mary, related to uh, the Magi, related to Joseph being warned. These were all related to the birth of the Messiah. Later on, Pilate's wife has a dream uh, because she's so agitated about what's about to happen with Jesus. But that dream may not, probably was not supernatural revelatory. It's probably closer to what we think of as, as intuition today. Um, and then the eleventh point is that the term vision is used twelve times in the New Testament, and it's, it refers to the transfiguration of Jesus. Uh, Saul is given a vision. Uh, Saul of Tarsus is given a vision of Ananias coming to heal his sight. Peter has the vision in Acts ten of uh, of Cornelius the uh, and uh, of uh, the, the tablecloth coming down descending from heaven. And, and uh, Paul's Macedonian vision, and then the Lord gave him a vision encouraging him to stay in Corinth in Acts 18. So we have four, four conclusions from all of this, and I'll wrap it up real quick. First of all, dreams and visions were in, to communicate when there was no written canon of Scripture. Dreams occurred mostly before there was a canon of Scripture. Second point Dream, which I've made already, dreams and visions were never designed to communicate personal information, personal guidance, or trivial data. And by personal guidance, um, they're given to give a representative of the covenant community guidance in terms of his ministry, not in terms of his personal life. You know, God, Peter's not given a vision to go find, you know, wherever he left the house keys or something. Uh, Third, dreams are common to everyone. Everybody dreams, but we don't use that as a system for guidance. When we evaluate the dreams of the Bible, they don't relate to personal issues. They relate to God's plan and purposes for history. And then the last observation or conclusion is that dreams and visions should not be confused with intuition. There's been a lot of studies done on intuition, especially in relationship to how mathematicians arrive at certain conclusions. They're working on certain formulas, and they may be thinking about this for, for days or weeks or months, and then they'll come in one day and they look at the at this problem that, that they've not been able to solve, and it's like suddenly they just have this flash of insight and they see what the solution is. And as they've studied this, what's really going on is that what we think of as intuition is simply the accumulation of knowledge and data 
that has gone into the computer of our mind. And our, our minds can work at different levels, and we can work on different problems and challenges uh, while we're uh, doing something else. We, we've all had the experience. I had it today when I was talking with someone, and, and I couldn't think of the name of the author of a particular article I wanted him to read, and I just mentally dismissed it from my mind. We went on to talk about other things, and about three minutes later, as I was talking about it, this author's name just came right out without me having to, to sit there and try to dredge it up. And often we have that experience where we can't think of something, and we I know that name's on the tip of my tongue, and then we get our mind on something else, but the brain's still working that problem, and then it pulls it up out of our memory. And so we don't understand all the dynamics that are going on in our thinking. So often, when it's just like a computer multitasks, we take the data in, but our brain, you know, sort of puts it into another area and keeps working on that. And that's what intuition is. It is the accumulation of knowledge and experience and everything that goes into particular things. And sometimes we wake up in the middle of the night. I used to do, when I was a young pastor, I would really hate it because I would be working on Sunday morning. This often happens with young pastors, working on Sunday morning, studying, 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 studying. You're just cranking on something. And then you go to bed, and all that's in your mind. Every time you wake up, you dream about it. You're just It's, it's what's going on in your head. Then suddenly you wake up about 4 in the morning, and you go, I was wrong about that. This is the answer. And, and it's not some irrational uh, solution, you go down and you work it out, you say, that, that's exactly right. You can demonstrate how to get there through all the proper methods and procedures of grammar and everything else. So that's how intuition works. And often when people have these kinds of things happen, they say, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. Well, it happens with unbelievers too. And I'm not saying the Holy Spirit can't work through that, but it's a covert operation, not an overt operation. It's how God put, put our whole thinking process together. So next time we'll come back and finish up with Solomon's organization in 1 Kings 9 and keep pressing on. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word, to be challenged with the way that you communicate to us through rational, understandable propositions. And as we study what you have revealed, we come to understand truth as you have defined it and as you have built it into the universe. We pray that we might be challenged to press on in our study and not to be conformed to the thinking of the world around us, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind through the study of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.